Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer, and I love all things tech. And it's time to revisit an old favorite topic on Tech Stuff. Two years ago, back in 2016, I updated a series I've been doing about the company Nintendo. Now, in the first two parts, I covered Nintendo from its origins up until about 2011. So 2011 was when we recorded those first two episodes. Chris Paulette, my original co-host, and I recorded those shows. Then in part three, I covered 2011 to early 2016. But at that stage, Nintendo had yet to come out with its most recent console, which we now know, of course, as the Nintendo Switch. Uh, so today, I thought it'd be a good time to revisit the company yet again and catch us up on what it's been doing over the last couple of years. But first, I figure we can do a really quick summary of where the company came from in case you aren't eager to dig up those old episodes and listen to them all over again. So this is sort of a previously on tech stuff. Back in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, and yes, that's how old Nintendo is, there was a man named Fusahiro Yamauchi who founded a Hanafuda Cards company, and he called it Nintendo Kopai. Hanafuda Cards are used for lots of different games in Japan. They're kind of like Western playing cards, like poker cards in that way. So we use those cards to play all sorts of games like bridge or poker or hearts or spades and tons of other games. Well, back in the 1880s, no one could possibly have foreseen the future of this playing card company and what it would become in the latter half of the 20th century. For two generations, business grew steadily. And by generations, I mean uh, Yamauchi's son would take over the business and then his grandson would take over the business. It actually followed the family line. By the 1950s, Fusahiro's grandson and the third president of Nintendo, Hiroshi Yamauchi, was heading a company that was the dominant producer of plastic playing cards in Japan. But Hiroshi Yamauchi recognized that there was a need to diversify the business, so he made a licensing deal with Disney to print the famous company's cartoon characters on these playing cards. This actually opened up a new market for Nintendo because up to that point, the cards were largely the realm of gamblers. But now, with popular Disney characters on cards, there was suddenly this huge appeal to a younger audience. Nintendo also produced books that laid out rules for new card games that were suitable for kids so that kids just didn't become hardened gamblers using classic Disney characters. Now, while this continued on, the company began to launch different uh, businesses in lots of different industries in an attempt to diversify because at that point, Yamachi saw that the playing card business was very niche-oriented. He actually saw other playing card factories while he toured the world and realized they were all very small operations and that if he stuck with that one business, it would limit Nintendo too much. Unfortunately, most of these other ventures Nintendo entered into failed miserably in the market. So the playing card business was drying up, and their various attempts to diversify, even going into things like hotels and uh, and and 
vehicles. None of that was working out. That's when an engineer named Gunpei Yokoi helped inject some life back into the business. He created an extending arm. He was working at Nintendo in a manufacturing plant, and he took various pieces, and he created essentially kind of a robotic arm or an extender, like a grabber sort of thing. And people saw it and thought, well, that's kind of neat. You know what? I think kids would really like that. So the company decided to make a consumer version as a toy, and Nintendo entered into the toy-making business in earnest, and really the company still considers itself to be a toy company. By the late 1970s, Nintendo had returned to a more stable place in the industry, as it was one of the few companies producing toys at that time in Japan. As computers and video games started to emerge, Nintendo got into those as well. And at first, the company acted as a distributor for other products like the Magnavox Odyssey. Then, the company began to produce arcade games like the legendary Donkey Kong for actual video game arcades, not for home use. Following the arcade game success, they began to make video game cartridges for various home systems like the Atari 2600. And then company executives decided it was time for Nintendo to make a console of its very own instead of making games for other platforms. But it was pretty bad timing, all things considered, because Nintendo was just getting into developing a console as the market in the United States was headed toward a major collapse. In the early 1980s, the U.S. market was oversaturated with various consoles, like you had the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, and tons more. Plus, there were home computers that were coming out around the same time, like the TI-99-4A, the Commodore 64, and the Apple II. Low-quality controls in companies like Atari meant that there was also a flood of substandard games that were rushed to market in an effort to make a quick buck. The consumer market couldn't sustain this pace, and by 1983, the whole thing was caving in on itself as consumers got tired of feeling like they were being fleeced. Stores were even beginning to refuse to carry games and systems because of this bad impression. So this was not the best time to debut a console, and yet Nintendo continued. They persevered, and they introduced the Famicom, which is better known in the United States as the Nintendo Entertainment System. In the U.S., the company paired this video game console with a robot of questionable utility. This was actually a ploy to get toy stores to carry the Nintendo, since they were awfully shy about getting back into the home video game market after that crash in 1983. But the plan worked, and Nintendo earned itself a spot in video game history, creating some of the most beloved franchises in the video game world in the process. You can listen to the first two episodes of the Nintendo story uh, to hear the full account of what I just summarized. Plus, obviously, I go into a lot more detail. However, we are going to skip ahead a bit. We're just going to acknowledge that Nintendo produced several consoles. There was the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo 64, the GameCube, the Wii, and the Wii U, not to mention numerous handheld game systems since the days of the Nintendo Entertainment System. At the time of my last recording, the most recent system on the market was the Wii U, which, while innovative, had failed to make a real impact on gamers. In fact, Wii U sales hit somewhere around 13.5 million toward the end of 2017. 
that actually puts it at the bottom of Nintendo's consoles in terms of sales. Contrast it with the Wii, the predecessor to the Wii U, and that was the best-selling home console Nintendo ever produced. The Wii sold more than 101 million units. The only Nintendo device to outsell the Wii was the handheld Nintendo DS, which sold an astonishing 154 million units, putting it right behind the PlayStation 2 for best-selling video game system of all time. It's hard to see the Wii U as anything other than a commercial failure. One other thing I should mention that I covered in the third episode of the Nintendo story was the passing of Satoru Iwata. He had served as Nintendo's fourth president, the first one not of the Amachi line, from 2012 to 2015. Iwata gets a lot of credit for Nintendo's focus on creating accessible and innovative methods of playing games rather than on raw computing power or graphics. So contrast that with like the Xbox or the PlayStation consoles. His death in 2015 from complications due to bile duct cancer shocked the video game industry. Iwata's successor and the fifth president of Nintendo is Tatsumi Kimishima. Kimishima worked at Sanwa Bank of Japan for more than two decades before he transitioned his career in a big way, because in 2000, he was elected the chief financial officer of the Pokemon Company. So he went from working in a financial institution for 27 years to becoming the CFO centered around cartoon characters that are forced to fight one another for our entertainment. It's quite the leap. In 2002, the first president of Nintendo of America, Minoru Arakawa, uh, he retired. So Hiroshi Yamauchi decided that Kimishima was the ideal candidate to head that part of Nintendo's business, and Kimishima became the second president of Nintendo of America. In 2006, he became the CEO of Nintendo of America, then he changed over to become the managing director of Nintendo. When Iwata passed away suddenly in 2015, he was selected to become the company's fifth president. It was Kimishima who would introduce the next Nintendo console to the world. When I recorded part three of the series back in 2016, we knew there was a new Nintendo console on the way. But we didn't really have any details other than a code name. In March 2016, Nintendo called the new console the NX, that being its code name. An earnings call in April 2016 revealed that the company planned to have a worldwide rollout of this new console by March of 2017, but there was still no mention of a name. This would hold true all the way through E3. That's the big video game trade show that takes place in Los Angeles, California each year. Nintendo's booth included a section themed after the upcoming Legend of Zelda game, Breath of the Wild. Now, while Breath of the Wild would become a flagship title, a launch title for the Nintendo Switch, the new hardware was nowhere to be found on the show floor at least not for the average attendee. Breath of the Wild would also get a release on the previous generation of hardware, that being the Wii U. That was the version that attendees got to try out while they were on the show floor. This led some in the video game journalism world to question Nintendo's strategy. You have a new console on the way, so some analysts are saying, why are you releasing a game that would be a killer title for this new console, on your older hardware, which presumably would strain the capabilities of this older hardware to the limit in order to create a comparable experience to the one gamers would have on a brand new system. 
Now, to be fair, Breath of the Wild started out as a Wii U title. That was the beginning of the project. It was only when Nintendo was starting to develop the Switch that they said, let's also develop a version of this title for our next generation console. So it wasn't like Nintendo set out from the beginning to create a splintered experience. But there were a lot of theories that were going on around that time. Some people said, well, the Wii U sales numbers are so low that Nintendo's just not worried about cannibalizing its own sales because there aren't enough Wii U units out there for it to make a huge impact. Other people said, well, maybe this was an attempt to sell a few more Wii U consoles before Nintendo stopped producing them entirely. Uh, either way, Breath of the Wild came out both for the Wii U and the Nintendo Switch at the same time, that being March of 2017. Effectively, it was the first Nintendo game for the Switch and the final Nintendo game for the Wii U. And by Nintendo game, I mean game actually developed by the company Nintendo, not through a third party that that then published on Nintendo. But I'll chat more about Breath of the Wild when we get to 2017. Back to E3 2016. Now, traditionally, companies take the opportunity at E3 to host enormous press events and announce upcoming hardware and game titles. Nintendo has done this in the past, but more recently, Nintendo has started to distance itself from the media circus that is press day at E3, opting instead to broadcast some live-streamed announcements over the internet. This included a lengthy demo of Breath of the Wild in which the company showed off the open world uh, style of gameplay as well as new elements never before seen in Zelda games. And the company also announced that a new mobile game was on the way to Android and iOS phones that summer. That game would be Pokemon Go. Now, I've done a full episode about Pokemon Go, but for those who somehow missed out on this game, it encouraged players to venture out into the real world to hunt virtual Pokemon monsters. You'd use Pokeballs to attempt to capture these monsters and add them to your Pokedex. I'm told these words make sense. The game featured several other items and gameplay elements, many of which were designed to encourage players to purchase virtual tools that they could then use within the game, and it linked real-world areas of interest, such as public art installations, with important in-game sites, like gyms, where the three factions within the game could battle it out over which team ran the facility. Pokemon Go would become a big hit for about a month encouraging people to wander blindly around while flicking at their screens in an effort to capture rare Pokemon critters. I remember being somewhat irritated as I tried to walk to or from work and having to maneuver around groups of people standing in the middle of the sidewalk trying to catch yet another Pidgey or Bulbasaur or whatever the heck they were called. But, all right, this is where I have to admit, I also played it. I, I had I had the game too. I was one of those jerks. The game still is going to this day, and there are a lot of people who still play it. Later generations of Pokemon monsters have been added to the game over time. I think the overall popularity of the game has been in a slight decline, but it's left a hardcore group of enthusiasts who continue to try and catch them all. Still, this game brought a lot of attention to mobile gaming and also to augmented reality. I think you could argue that the augmented reality aspect of the game was pretty basic in its implementation, but it still required people to merge real-world experiences with in-game experiences, so I think it still counts. Breath of the Wild and Pokemon Go were the two big announcements at E3, but the world was still waiting to find out what the next Nintendo console would be called, 
And Nintendo had another classic trick up its sleeve to reveal a little later that same summer. I'll tell you more about that in just a second, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In July 2016, Nintendo announced it would offer up a limited run of a special console, the NES Mini. It looked like a miniature version of the original Nintendo Entertainment System here in America. In other markets, it more closely resembled the original colors and form factor of the Famicom system. The emulator had 30 games coded onto it and could hold saves for those games, which already put it ahead of the original system it was copying. The cost of the NES Mini was $60 here in America, making it about $2 a game. And those games included a lot of classic bestsellers in Nintendo's history, such as Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, the fiendishly difficult Ghosts and Goblins, Donkey Kong, which was the game that really gave Nintendo its start in video games in the first place, and Punch-Out!, my personal favorite of the games from that era. The console shipped with a single NES Classic controller with a notoriously short cord. People really complained about how short that controller's cord was. It was designed to copy the old rectangular controllers of the original NES. It's also compatible with the Wii Classic Controller Pro, so if you have one of those, you could hook that up to the NES Classic Mini. The announcement revealed that the consoles would become available in November 2016. A month before that, various retailers began to offer pre-sale reservations for the system. They sold out practically as soon as they became available. The NES Classic Mini became a sought-after item. Now, I was able to get one, but only because I happened to get a message from the Amazon Treasure Truck, which stopped here in Atlanta with a few reserved systems at a regular retail price. But other people were not so lucky and either had to go without or cough up ridiculous amounts of money on sites like eBay. Nintendo had only produced about 2.3 million units. That sounds like a lot, but it didn't come close to meeting demand. The original NES sold more than 60 million units when it was still in production. To make matters worse, the company announced on, well, right around April 2017, that it had discontinued the NES Classic, which made fans go bonkers because there were so many who wanted to get one and didn't have the chance. It also drove up the price for the remaining units considerably on those resale sites like eBay. Later, Nintendo would say that by mid-2018, it would begin to produce more NES Classic editions. This was likely in response not just to the fans who felt left out because they never had a chance to buy one of them, but also to combat the rising market of third-party clones that were springing up. These cloned systems often used emulators that were not optimized to run Nintendo games, so they would create an unsatisfactory gaming experience for anyone who bought them. As of the recording of this podcast, Nintendo has yet to make more of these available, but a visit to the product's website says they're coming in the summer of 2018. One other thing that happened with the NES Classic was that hackers learned how to access the system's memory and add in new games. There have been several hacks that allow NES Classic Mini owners the chance to add their console's library and increase it dramatically, including using titles that were not on the original NES. 
This is the point in the podcast where I mention that. While you certainly can hack your NES Classic to do these things, there's always a risk involved with such activities. If you brick your system, you may find that you've got a $60 paperweight and very little chance of turning it back into any sort of useful piece of hardware. So just be careful and know what you're getting into before you start messing about. In October 2016, Nintendo finally announced that the NX console would officially bear the name Nintendo Switch. The Switch is a hybrid console, meaning it can be both a docked console that uses a television as the display, or you can undock it and use the device as a handheld gaming system. The handheld version of the console looks like a video screen flanked by two detachable game controllers called Joy-Con controllers. Each controller has a thumbstick and buttons. Nintendo announced that the system would also support a more traditional game controller, similar to Xbox controllers, called a Nintendo Switch Pro Controller. While Nintendo didn't initially announce the tech specs for the Switch, those details did later become public. With the Joy-Cons attached, the Switch measures 4 inches, or 10 centimeters tall, 9.4 inches wide, or about 24 centimeters, and half an inch thick, or 1.27 centimeters. That doesn't take into consideration the height of the thumbstick, however, so if you take those into account, the thickness increases to 1.12 inches, or 2.8 centimeters. It weighs about 0.88 pounds, so not even a full pound. That's about 0.4 kilograms with the Joy-Cons attached. The Nintendo Switch has an NVIDIA Tegra X1 SoC as the brains of the machine. SoC stands for System on a Chip. This is an integration of several different pieces you would find in your typical computer device, such as a central processing unit, more on that in a second, a graphics processing unit, a memory controller, and some other components, but they would all be put on a single chip. This saves space, and it's great for things like portable devices. The CPU powering the Nintendo Switch is an ARM Cortex-A57 with four processing cores, meaning it's a quad-core processor. And just to remind you guys, that means the CPU can break up certain types of computational problems into smaller problems that each core can tackle individually. Not all computational problems work this way, but many that are related to video games fall into that category. One day, I'll have to do a full episode on ARM processors and the company behind them, but as a quick and dirty explanation, I'll simplify it to say that ARM processors are typically less complex than the type you find in desktop computers, such as those that use Intel's x86 architecture. They consume less power, and they generate less heat than those more complicated CPUs, which makes them ideal for mobile devices. The graphics processing unit has 256 cores. It's also CUDA-enabled, or C-U-D-A. CUDA is an acronym that stands for Compute Unified Device Architecture, and it's an application programming interface, or API, from NVIDIA. The purpose of CUDA is to give developers access to a hardware's capabilities so that the software the developers design runs smoothly on that hardware. When docked, the Switch's GPU runs at a max clock speed of 768 MHz. In handheld mode, it downshifts to 307.2 MHz. 
The Switch is also home to several sensors, such as an accelerometer and a brightness sensor. That allows not just for dynamic adjustments, but also the potential for gameplay mechanics further on. So you might have a game that relies on you turning the Switch this way or that in handheld mode, or going outside into bright sunlight in some cases. The display on the handheld Switch device is 6.2 inches on the diagonal and has a resolution of 1280 by 720 pixels. It also has multi-touch support for up to 10 points of contact. When you dock the Switch, it sends video out at 1080p resolution and 60 frames a second natively, though many games run at a frame rate much lower than 60. The system has a pair of speakers and audio is in stereo. The battery for the Switch is a lithium-ion rechargeable battery that, according to Nintendo, will provide between two and a half and six and a half hours of battery life, but that depends upon the type of game you play. So some of them push the system a little harder than others, and so the battery life is shorter than others. The harder you push the system, the more juice you are burning through. So it takes about three hours to charge a Switch all the way back up to fully charged from fully drained. The Switch has 32 gigabytes of storage space on board the device, which is important because all save games are stored on the hardware. That means if something happens to your Switch, you lose all of your saves. There's no cloud-saving feature to keep your progress in a game. If your Switch is lost, stolen, or damaged, you pretty much lose everything. Now, some of that storage space is not available to the user because the system reserves it for system-critical operations. You can purchase memory cards in the microSDHC or microSDXC formats, with each card holding up to 2 terabytes of additional storage if you've got the cash for that sort of thing. The Nintendo Switch can connect to the Internet via Wi-Fi or a local area network or LAN adapter. It also has Bluetooth 4.1, and yet no support for Bluetooth headphones, much to the consternation of some gamers I follow online, such as Ashley Jenkins, who has spoken extensively about the Switch. This is essentially a plug for Miss Jenkins' work on her series The No, and just in the interest of full disclosure, I don't think she has any idea who I am, so this is just me as a fan of her work. She does good coverage of stuff like this. The Switch does have a 3.5mm headphone jack, but it's located in a spot that some gamers just feels awkward. Plus, a lot of people just don't want to have cords and cables anymore. They prefer this Bluetooth wireless approach. Switch owners can access multiplayer through online services that will eventually be locked behind a subscription service similar to Xbox Live, but that has not been launched yet. There's a sort of a free preview version of what is available But the paid subscription approach hasn't gone into effect. It's supposed to before the end of 2018. Gamers can also purchase games online and download them to the Switch, though the limited storage space presents a bit of a challenge in that regard because while 32 gigabytes sounds like a lot, video games these days can easily dwarf that amount of storage space. Games for the Nintendo Switch are on game cards, which are essentially cartridges. These small cartridges have a special coating called denatonium benzoit. This stuff doesn't help the performance of the cards in any way. Instead, it's meant to act as a deterrent for would-be cartridge chompers. See, Nintendo was worried that some young 
enthusiasts might want to pop one of these cards into his or her hungry little mouth. So they use this coating to give the cartridges a bitter taste. In fact, this chemical has a reputation for being the most bitter chemical compound produced. It's an additive used in many toxic compounds in an effort to dissuade people from ingesting them. So you'll find this stuff in cleaners and automotive supplies and things like that. However, the chemical itself is non-toxic. It just gets added to toxic stuff because it tastes really awful and it makes people rethink their decisions. Also, it was apparently discovered accidentally when a bunch of chemists were working on creating a dental anesthetic. So you gotta wonder what it was like the day they found out how bitter that stuff was. Anyway, let's get back to the switch. The announcement got folks excited, but the actual launch of the console was half a year away. We learned about the name and some of the specs by the end of 2016, but it wouldn't be until the spring of 2017 when the Switch made its debut. And when it did, a few media outlets picked up on something unusual. First, like a lot of Nintendo launches, the Switch was in very high demand right out of the gate. Demand in some markets greatly exceeded supply, which resulted in long waits for fans as they checked their local stores and online retailers for updated inventories. By April 2017, a month after the system went on sale, initial figures said that 906,000 Nintendo Switch units had been sold, so just under a million. But here's the weird part. Those figures also said that 926,000 copies of Zelda Breath of the Wild had also been sold. In other words, 20,000 more copies of the game were sold than actual Nintendo Switches. But you say, wait a minute, Breath of the Wild was available not just for the Switch, but also the Wii U, so surely that 926,000 number includes both, right? That explains the discrepancy. But no, it doesn't, because the 926,000 figure was just for copies of the Switch version of Breath of the Wild. The Wii U version sold about 460,000 units in that same time frame. So what we're left with is a story about how a game for a system actually outsold the system itself. So what gives? Forbes ran a story on this in April 2017, and the writer offered up a few hypotheses to potentially explain this discrepancy. One possible explanation was double dippers. There could be some enthusiastic gamers who had bought two copies of the game, one a basic version that they were just going to play, and one a collector's version that they wanted to keep. That's possible. Maybe some of them just never planned to play it at all. They just wanted to buy the Zelda game because they love Zelda so much and it was more or less a collectible, though an expensive one. Uh, maybe some people thought, I'll buy this now and then I'm going to mark it up and sell it online for people who can't find a copy in their local stores. That's another possibility. Or it could be that they were buying the game because they wanted to have a game as soon as they got a Switch, but the Switch itself wasn't yet available in their market. Maybe it had already sold out and they were waiting for new shipments, but meanwhile, Zelda was available and they thought, well, I can go ahead and buy the game now, and that way when the console gets here, I'll have something to play on it right away. That's also a possibility. Whatever the reason, it meant that Breath of the Wild enjoyed a 100% attach rate. That that means that there was a copy of the game sold for every single system sold in that time. Technically, you could actually say that it had a 102% attach rate because, like I said, they sold more copies of the game than they sold 
of the console. As a comparison, the Wii U's most celebrated title was New Super Mario Bros. U. So, New Super Mario Bros. U, biggest title on the Wii U. It had a 60% attach rate. Both the system and Breath of the Wild were doing well right out of the gate. Breath of the Wild continues to do well to this day. They passed the 6.7 million mark in January 2018 on the Switch, and they had another million in sales on the Wii U, which put Breath of the Wild just behind Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess for the most popular Zelda title of all time. By that time, the Nintendo Switch had gained this distinction of becoming the fastest-selling console in U.S. history, at least according to Nintendo. One game that did surpass Breath of the Wild in attach rates by the end of 2017, at least in the U.S., was Super Mario Odyssey, a 3D platform starring Nintendo's beloved mascot, Mario Mario. Because we learned that his last name is Mario, and presumably his first name is Mario, so... There you go. Super Mario Odyssey didn't come out until October 2017, but it has sold more than 9 million copies, so it rocketed to first place for all Nintendo Switch titles. Other launch titles for the Nintendo Switch included a couple of Shovel Knight games. Those are a series of comedic medieval-themed side-scrolling adventure games. Uh, Ubisoft's Just Dance 2017 was another launch title. Super Bomberman R from Activision was another one. Uh, also a game called 1-2-Switch from Nintendo. That last one is a party game that pits players against each other in a series of mini-games, some of which are truly bizarre. Now, I've got more to say about Nintendo and what's been going on over the last few months, but before I get into this last section, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. One thing that happened not long after the Switch announcement was the release of the mobile game Super Mario Run on iOS. A version for Android would launch in March 2017. The game is a side-scroller in which a little Mario runs across the screen. Players control when Mario jumps and they collect coins and avoid obstacles and enemies along the way. The goal is to get through a level in as little time as possible. There are other elements to the game, but that's the basic idea. This was a big move for Nintendo, which for years had avoided making its IP available on any hardware that was not produced by the company itself. Ever since it got into making its own consoles, it kind of stuck to that philosophy. The game has received a mixed reaction from critics and fans. Some people were critical of the game's price tag, which was $10. That's considered to be pretty high for some mobile games. And there was a lot of criticism as well that the game requires a persistent internet connection in order to work. The internet connection makes it tricky to play the game in places where many people feel it would actually work best, like on a plane. Still, the game's sales helped boost Nintendo's financials in a positive way. Last year, in 2017, that was a huge year for Nintendo. It was enjoying success with the launch of the Switch, It was having to dance around supply issues with the NES Classic Mini, which was way more popular than the company appeared to have anticipated. And then in June 2017, the company made another announcement. It was making another classic system emulator. This time, it was the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Like the NES Classic Mini, this system looks like a miniature version of the original console, and depending on what market you live in, it would look like the original SNES for that market. 
The Super Nintendo first became available in 1991 here in the U.S., although it had already shown up a little bit earlier in Japan back in 1990. While the NES was an 8-bit video game system, the SNES upped the ante with a 16-bit approach. The SNES Classic attempts to cash in on the nostalgia players have for that beloved system. Like the NES Classic, it has a selection of games that are saved to the system itself. In the United States, those titles included things like Contra 3, Donkey Kong Country, Final Fantasy 3, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, Street Fighter 2 Turbo Hyper Fighting, Super Metroid, and Super Mario World, among others. Other regions had a slightly different lineup of games. Nintendo made a promise that the company would do better with this SNES Classic than it had with the NES Classic. It produced more units of the miniature console. Even so, the the demand for the SNES Classic was crazy high, and finding one became a big challenge for many people. Nintendo had originally intended to only offer up a limited run of this console, but after having seen what happened with the NES Classic, the company committed to producing more units throughout 2018. This was around the same time that Nintendo also committed to producing more NES Classics. Reporters discovered that the two systems, the SNES and the NES Classics, were running on exactly the same hardware, which means you could, in theory, buy one and hack it to run games meant for the other. But again, I advise against doing that unless you are confident you know what you're doing and you're cool with accepting the risk that a mistake could turn your classic console emulator into a nostalgic piece of otherwise inert plastic. In early 2018, Nintendo announced a product called Labo. Labo is a line of kits that are meant to encourage STEM learning, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, by giving kids a chance to build various devices out of pieces of cardboard, pre-cut pieces of cardboard. And it uses the Nintendo Switch as the brains and sensors and even the motors for some of these gadgets. Nintendo calls these gadgets Toy-Cons. Some of them allow you to make a new controller system for the Switch, such as a cardboard set of handlebars for, like, a motorcycle game. Others let you make music. There's a cardboard piano, which relies on the infrared sensor on the right Joy-Con that detects which key is being pressed at any given time. There's even a fully-fledged robot suit kit, which lets you control a virtual robot character while you wear special cuffs on your wrists and ankles, and you use that to move this virtual robot around like a digital puppet. As of the recording of this podcast, the Labo products have not yet officially hit store shelves. That will happen on April 20th, 2018. They're pretty expensive. The variety kit will set you back about $70, while the robot kit costs a whopping $80. Now keep in mind, these kits are largely cardboard. So some people have criticized this, saying, Nintendo is charging exorbitant amounts of money for what amounts to a cardboard kit. Other people are saying, well, you could argue that, but this is also a valuable teaching tool for people who want to learn more about engineering, robotics, that kind of thing. And it could lead to all sorts of really cool applications. So there are people on both sides of the fence on this. But that's about it for this update. I could add that the Nintendo Switch has featured games made famous on other platforms, such as Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, or the upcoming release of Wolfenstein II for the Switch. These games have a much more mature tone than what you would typically find on Nintendo. 
But there have been other titles on other Nintendo consoles that dealt with dark subject matter in the past. So it's not like this is brand new. It's just a, a very, um, let's say visceral example of that trend. And with E3 coming up as the recording of this podcast, I'm sure there will likely be other announcements that will necessitate an update to the series again, you know, in a couple of years. Nintendo continues to be an important player in the video game industry, and they continue to cater to a different kind of audience than the audiences that Sony and Microsoft are going after with the PlayStation and Xbox platforms, respectively. That doesn't mean that a gamer can't enjoy one or more of those systems. They might have all of them. But what it does mean is Nintendo does not want to play by the rules that Microsoft and Sony are setting, where they're really focusing on the technical capabilities of their respective systems and how many pixels they can show, whether they can go into 4K or 8K resolution, uh, how realistic the animations are. All of that is stuff that Microsoft and Sony have really been concentrating on, while Nintendo says, you know what? We're going to leave that to you because that game changes all the time. And if you bank on making your console the state of the art in graphics and sound of today, next year you're already behind again because those continue to get better and better, but your console is going to remain the same. If instead of that, you try and come up with innovative ways to play games, whether it's creating more group based games so that you get lots of people over at your house to experience something together or different control schemes so that you control your game in a completely different way. It means that you've differentiated your console from these other two powerhouses. And it's worked more or less for Nintendo over the past few generations. It worked great for the Wii, did not work so great for the Wii U, and it seems to be working great for the Switch, which if it stays on its current trajectory, stands to become one of the best-selling game consoles of all time, assuming that it can sustain that level of growth. In the meantime, I look forward to seeing what else Nintendo comes out with over the next few months. Uh, I do not currently own a Nintendo Switch. The last Nintendo console I purchased was the first Nintendo Wii, but I've seen enough of the Switch to make me curious, and perhaps I might even explore purchasing one. I definitely want to play with one. I haven't even really had the chance to do that, but then I don't get out much. I hope to get a chance to play with one and maybe purchase one for myself at some point uh, if I really like it. What I really need to do is hook up that Nintendo Entertainment System Classic Mini that I have, because here's where I admit something that I'm not proud of. It's still in the shrink wrap, because while I bought it two years ago, I have not had a chance to play it yet. That's my life, guys. I'm still playing through Skyrim on the PC. But I hope to be able to play more of these games. And I hope to do more episodes about big, big companies in tech, as well as the products they work on, the innovations they've created, the way that they've shaped our world. If you have suggestions for any sort of tech topic, whether it's a company, a specific technology, someone important in the technological world, anything along those lines, 
let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Follow us on Instagram. And make sure you drop by twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record these shows live. You can watch me as I live stream and make mistakes and yell at my producer for not having seen movies that I think are important but probably aren't important. But, you know, I still maintain that they are important. You'll get to see all of this amazing content if you go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. Plus, you can join in on the chat room and you can tell me that I'm being a meanie head because sometimes I am. I look forward to seeing you, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>